Welcome to The Breakdown, episode number two. Today, I'm really pleased to share a conversation with John Ziegler, co-CEO of Active Apparel. Active Apparel is a truly global, vertically integrated apparel manufacturer, distributor. John's got a really interesting background. He's, he's a great guy, somebody I've known for a long time. He played tennis for UCLA and continues to play at a very high level, uh, competing nationally. Uh, John started his career as an investment banker and ultimately advised some of the largest uh, financial institutions, both domestically and globally, through the Great Recession. And around that time, he'll walk us through how he invested in Soulfire, which was a tennis apparel company initially, which expanded into multiple other sports, and also his analysis of the industry landscape and the factors that led him to invest in a, a truly vertically integrated global manufacturing and supply chain capability. I think it's a fascinating conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Okay, John, good morning, and thanks for being with us. Uh, John Ziegler is the uh, co-CEO of Active Apparel and the owner of Soulfire Group. And John's had a, a very interesting business career and can give us a real firsthand look at how the Active Apparel industry works from front to back. So first off, John, thanks for taking time to be with us. Looking forward to this conversation. First off, where'd you grow up? And did you have any early indication that a, a uh, career in the sports business was uh, in your future? <laughs> well, first of all, Scott, thanks a lot for the opportunity to have a conversation and look forward to this. I grew up and was born and raised in California, in Northern California. And, you know, I grew up as a multi-sport athlete who paid attention to school from time to time. And That's good. what I would what I would say is, I grew up in a time when sport was not one sport at a high level, but there were three or four seasons. So I ran cross country, I played soccer, I played tennis, I played basketball, I wrestled, all as kind of a part uh, and and track and field. As I got a little bit older, I really specialized in soccer and tennis. As I you know. Uh, you know, my talents kind of went there. And ultimately, I went to UCLA, not as a, you know, an athlete, but as an aspiring athlete uh, for tennis. And I walked on to the tennis team my sophomore year when I won the basically the walk-on tournament uh, at UCLA. That can't be easy at UCLA. No, they were number one in the country, as you know, because you were one of the competing teams at the time. Every year I was there. Uh, at some time during the year. But I tried the freshman year and I lost in the semifinals of the walk-on tournament. And my sophomore year, I won the walk-on tournament and got a role basically to be the, the worst player on the team, which I certainly was at the time. Uh, there were a lot of great players, but I was the best of, of what was not recruited at the bottom of the rung. And I, you know, I played some, what we'll say is friendly matches with, with teams that were not during the competitive season to, to give some of the players rest. But I actually tore a bunch of ligaments my ankle my sophomore year, shortly after making the walk-on team, and was on crutches for six weeks and had a lot of time to think about a career in professional sports. And I, at a stout five foot eight, uh, realized that I really had no prospect as a professional athlete, even though it was a real passion of mine, and I needed to focus on my studies. Now, this was also more informed by the fact that. The head coach at the time, or really the the upcoming head coach, um, a guy named Billy Martin, sure was 
one of the greatest tennis players in the world that nobody's ever heard of. He was at the time one of three people who had won the NCAA tournament as a freshman, John McEnroe and Jimmy Connors. He was the third. He had won multiple gold balls and had won the rookie of the year, like Michael Chang and others. And he took Bjorn Borg five sets at Wimbledon during Borg's reign as five Wimbledons in a row. Billy Martin was the head coach at UCLA and had two artificial hips and, and had those replaced because he had congenital hip disease. And he was the head coach of UCLA. And I knew that background. And I looked at myself and I didn't have anywhere near as much talent as he had. And I just tore a bunch of ligaments in my ankle. And I said, I need to figure out a new business. And so I started to hit the books and focus on potentially a career in investment banking or management consulting. And that's really what I spent the last couple of years at UCLA focusing on was trying to get a job in one of those areas. And how did you pick those two as the likely avenues you wanted to pursue? Uh, you know, the answer is you never really know what kind of drives you to be interested or inspired by business, but I've always been focused on a uh, lifelong learning and really being obsessed with finding something that is interesting and learn everything you can about it. And I figured after I studied being a management consultant, and that was really my preference, even being over a banker. I just had some friends that were bankers. And so they said, you know, that's an interesting career. But management consultants were people who worked with the best businessmen in the country, and they helped them basically improve their businesses. And I thought as a young professional, that would be a really unique opportunity to spend time with senior management learning about their business. And I could kind of learn from them while trying to help them with their problems. And so that's why I was kind of intrigued with the idea. Ultimately, I got a job in investment banking and regrettably didn't get the job that I wanted in management consulting. And so I went into investment banking out of college. And which firm did you start with? Were you out in LA or back in New York? I actually started at a firm called the First Boston Corporation, which is now Credit Suisse. Sure. But they were one of the top merger boutiques in the United States. And I started in the Los Angeles office and I was started in the analyst program. And this was at a time when it was very, very stressful time in Wall Street where there was actually a significant downturn. So I was a incoming analyst replacing two second-year analysts, and that was the full hiring plan for the year for the LA office of, of the first Boston Corporation. So in other words, get up to speed ASAP and do the work of two people. Yes, and see if you can survive that. And so the answer was I was thrown in head first and, you know, amazingly survived the you know first couple of years of stress and, and got up the curve. One of those assignments was interesting, though, is we were representing a company called Northrop uh, at the time, uh, trying to buy a business that actually manufactured the F-16 fighter pilots, or the fighter planes. Mm -hmm. And I met a bunch of Goldman Sachs bankers uh, who were representing the sell side. And after that engagement, they actually asked me to join Goldman Sachs as a third-year analyst because they had liked the work that I had done for Northrop on the other side of the business. And so interestingly enough, even though I was at Credit Suisse or you know the first Boston Corporation for two years, I went to go to Goldman Sachs to be a third-year analyst. And they really said, look, spend a year with us, and then you can either go to business school or we can think about promoting you, but let's let's focus on having a good year first. And so that's that's kind of how I got into it. And I moved from Los Angeles to New York, and I've been in 
you know, uh, basically a, 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 I was a banker for, for 20 plus years in New York, uh, following that transition. And what group did you join at Goldman Sachs? Was there an industry specialty? It, it was interesting at the time Goldman Sachs was known as everything, you know, they would, you know, everything, the answer was black. So they had taken Ford public. And so Ford was like, you know, Henry Ford was like, you know, you can have whatever color you want, just as long as it's black. Well, Goldman Sachs was known as the vanilla answer to everything. And so I was actually brought into the product development group within corporate finance. And our goal was just to be able to go to clients and present them creative alternatives to vanilla. That was the sole purpose of the group. And there was a guy named Paul Efron, who was a very successful partner, and myself, who started the new products group. And we literally went and developed different types of structured securities or tax advantage options. And we did a bunch of different things. And over my time in the product development group, we did a number of very innovative transactions for Goldman Sachs, which helped propel my career into the corporate finance department. And then ultimately, I went to go transition into the financial institutions group to do a lot of the bank mergers and financial services acquisitions with a guy named Chris Flowers, who was a uh, a very successful uh, investment banker at Goldman Sachs at the time. So I I started you know kind of a new products group, was then in corporate finance, and then evolved into the financial institutions group. And I was at Goldman for a little bit over a decade doing that, and was you know as high as a managing director before I moved on to a firm where I was a partner called Sandler O'Neill. Interesting stuff. And so in in your time as a fig banker, if I recall correctly, you were involved in the 2009 financial crisis. Do I have that right? So I'd actually been a fig banker in the financial crisis, but I spent more of it at Sandler O'Neill than I did at Goldman. And what happened was Goldman Sachs went public and it was an extraordinary firm owned by the partners, but it went public, I felt like it lost a little bit of the essence of its culture. And this was also after kind of 9-11. And Sandler O'Neill was devastated by 9-11. They lost roughly 30% of their employees and many of the founding partners in 9-11. And several prominent bankers, a guy named Emmett Daly from Merrill Lynch, a guy named Brian Sterling from Merrill Lynch, and others had joined Sandler O'Neill prior to me and had really bolstered that firm from a capabilities perspective. And I was banking very large companies like uh, Bank of America and Wachovia and SunTrust and Bank of New York and Mellon. Those were my customers, but that was not really the core customers of Sandler O'Neill. So as I got to see the cultural transition inside of Goldman and what I felt is a little bit of special sauce that really brought me to it when I started, a chance to join uh, an emerging firm, which was also a partnership at San O'Neill, and to really join forces where I was a little bit more skilled and, and experienced in the larger transactions. And they really had second to none deal flow in financial services broadly because they serve the middle and smaller banks better than anybody in the country. And so we thought that was an interesting partnership. And so I joined as a partner basically prior to the financial crisis. Then when the financial crisis happened, I got involved with, uh, with uh, you know, helping a lot of the, the financial services companies as a partner, Sam O'Neill. What was that like? I mean, from the outside, it, it, it was an extraordinary time. It looks like an extraordinary time. What are the things you can talk about that just sort of stood out in your mind from that experience? 
the way I can describe it, and I've actually, it, it has a lot to do with why I now got into the active apparel business. When I grew up as a banker, there was an aspirational approach to my process, which was we were talking to customers and clients about buying businesses, raising capital. And when, when I was a, when I was at Goldman, I was actually on the tech banking team for a period of time. So we were taking emerging technology companies public. Very exciting time. The financial crisis was kind of like hearing that there was a massive pileup on the highway and there were a bunch of people coming into the emergency room. And it was really a battle triage environment where there were clients coming in saying, you know, I have, I have a little bit of problem with my arm. Could you take a look and maybe give me a Band-Aid? And we would take a look at it and we would say, well, we're going to have to amputate your arm. And the client would be like, what are you talking about? And they said, well, yeah, you have this bad credit situation. And if you don't get rid of that right now and raise this amount of capital, you're going to die. And if we don't amputate and deal with that, it's going to be a bigger problem. That totally changed the psychology of banking for me because I was now really a, a triage surgeon for about five straight years. And there were more patients. I was just going to say, is that disparity of view between you and the client because they didn't understand what was in their portfolio or they didn't really quite want to face into it? Both. A lot of companies are focusing on growing and they've got people below them that they trust and they think know what's going on. And what they find out in hindsight is that their team wasn't as strong as they were hoping they were. And secondly, sometimes these were people just in, in denial. They just were like, it couldn't be this bad. It's not going to be this bad. And honestly, I really do remember with one of the biggest banks in the United States, I remember calling them and their stock was at $42. I'll never forget this call. The stock was at $42. And I said, uh, his name is Richard, a very successful executive in the banking industry. I said, Richard, I think you need to raise a couple of billion dollars at 42 right now. And if you don't raise it, Right now, you may have to raise a couple of billion more at probably a third of your price. And he said, John, that's really funny. I want you to come into the meeting first because my CEO is going to throw you out of the window and I want somebody to land on after he throws you out the window. Well, roll the tape forward. We sold $4 billion of stock at an average price of 17 for that company. A couple of years later. Yeah. That kind of characterizes what it was like for five years. It, it, and these were world-class companies. And it was really that traumatic. And, and people just had a very hard time getting their head around the full scope and the damage of the financial crisis and what it was going to do to their institutions. And it benefited me personally. And a lot of my success came out of helping these companies in tough situations. But at the same time, I didn't want to be a triage doctor. I wanted to grow businesses. I wanted to help build and, and develop, you know, develop businesses rather than, um, you know, tell somebody that, you know, their, their blister meant that we're going to have to amputate their leg. Right. And in this period of period, were you also, I'm guessing in touch with treasury, the fed, the federal government, everybody, absolutely all the time. What was that like? Regulators. So the way it would typically work is you knew you had a problem, and depending upon how big a bank it was, because at Sandler O'Neill, we saw an amazing range of, 
of clients from, you know, small regional or local banks to the biggest banks in the United States. The Fed was in touch with the big banks on a pretty regular basis and would often often bring their senior executives to Washington and sometimes tell them things like, you're going to get a couple of billion dollars of capital and we're going to call that TARP. And this is basically the United States government investing in the biggest banks in the United States, backing up their balance sheets so that they're going to be okay, so that we don't lose confidence in the financial services system in the United States, which was, you know, that was kind of an outgoing thing. When you actually got to a place where it was time to raise capital, you needed to talk to oftentimes either the Fed, the FDIC, the Office of the Thrift, or all of them, depending upon what what your charter was, to be able to coordinate with them about what a capital raise might look like. Because sometimes they were actually deciding whether to take you over if you couldn't raise capital. Mm -hmm. And so you call them and say, we're trying to raise capital, please don't take us over. And at the time, literally, the FDIC was closing you know, hundreds of institutions annually. And so there were, you know, three or four a week that would be taken over by the FDIC. And and we were helping finance and recap a lot of those companies. Um, and again, you know, it, it ended up taking out effectively Washington Mutual, Lehman Brothers, you know, through different areas. But, but there was a, you know, a level of pace of the crisis that was extraordinary. And um, so we were involved with all of those conversations all the time. Initially, it was the government investing in the financial services industry to basically bolster the balance sheet. And then the second step was to clean up the problems. And that was that was where it was a bit more proactive with each of the regulators to try to get something done. So you're a fascinating stuff. So you're, you're a first responder on the scene. And is it at this point or when does the Soul Fire opportunity come across your desk? How did that <laughs> transition happen? So Look, you and I are what I'm going to say is aging tennis players that can play a little bit, but didn't didn't play, you know, on the tour. But I didn't really lose that fight. And so when I basically got into my 30s, I started to get back to playing competitive tennis. And I was playing the, you know, the the national hard courts and clay courts and other things in the age divisions uh, for kind of older tennis players. And I met and doing very well. Uh, <laughs> let's just say. I've I I have uh, exceeded my talent level and my results. I I like to work hard. And I you know I hustle as you know, but I ran into actually the founder of Soulfire at that point in time, a guy named Brendan Murphy, who was actually a professional basketball player in Europe as well. He's a, a world class athlete, exceptional athlete. So he played professional basketball for about five years in Europe. He also played tennis at a very high level, and he was also a professional artist, and he continues to be. Uh, a successful artist today. And Brendan had a really interesting idea. He painted really colorful uh, art with interesting kind of engaging images of lions and tigers and, and, and things like that. And what he did is he, did, he used a process where he would take a digital phot- photograph of his art. And then what we would do is we would print it through a process called sublimation onto apparel. And he showed it to Tennis Warehouse. And Tennis Warehouse was like, this is really interesting because it's original art. It's his own art. And there was really just kind of reds and blues and whites for tennis from Nike and Adidas at the time. It kind of got to a boring phase. I mean, this we were well past the Andre Agassi, you know, jean shorts and, you know, kind of, you know, long hair phase. And so tennis apparel kind of got boring. So Tennis Warehouse gave Brendan an order for some apparel, but he needed the money to be able to actually do it. 
And so a mutual friend of ours, a guy named Klein Sack, who was also a very good uh, tennis player, he, sure. he played collegiate uh, tennis a little bit professionally uh, for a brief period of time before he realized how hard that job really was. And he got us in touch and he said, John, you should spend some time with Brendan. I had met Brendan through the national kind of competition circuit a bit. And he introduced me to Tennis Warehouse and he and I worked together to start Soulfire and launch the first, you know, kind of Soulfire thing on Tennis Warehouse about six and a half or seven years ago. And what did that first order look like? How big was it? How many, how many pieces of apparel was it? Can you give us a sense of the... It was pretty small, but it was a very broad order. So Tennis Warehouse... For, for those that don't really know the tennis business that well, is the number one retailer for tennis anything in the world. It's an online-based business in California. And if you're on Tennis Warehouse, you're in the tennis business. And so, and I had known that because I had been a customer of Tennis Warehouse for a decade as a, you know, as a player. And, and so I knew that if I could get a brand on there, I immediately had a credible distribution platform where I could go to other potential distributors of the apparel and say, look, I'm on Tennis Warehouse. Why don't you come over? So that's kind of, that was the business side of me started to, to grind a little bit. But the order was actually quite small. I think the aggregate order was about $80,000. And it was for both men's and women's tops and bottoms. And it was probably 50 or 80 units per style, per colorway. So, you know, in aggregate, it was probably three or 4,000, you know, units, maybe even less than that. But the thing is, it was a men's and women's brand. So I like that because I didn't want to just be pigeonholed into a men's only or a women's only brand because Nike and Adidas and Under Armour really had strong customer bases, even though they you know might have a strength in men's or women's. They were really a, a, a gender neutral brand. And I wanted Soulfire to be a gender neutral brand. So we we launched with men's and women's and we actually got quite lucky because I, I hired an ambassador named Ivan Dodig, sure. who was a player who had made the top 30 in the world, but had, had gotten an injury and fallen back. And he was making a resurgence. And Ivan's agent called me and said, John, Ivan would like to have a relationship with Soulfire. He's looking for a new uh, sponsor. And we negotiated to basically pay Ivan $1,500 to play Roger Federer on center court at Indian Wells in, I think it was the second or third round. And he wore our stuff for the first time while we were launching it with Tennis Warehouse. And it was a lion shirt that was really a very interesting looking shirt. And it basically, everybody loved it at Indian Wells. And we sold out of all of our stock in Tennis Warehouse in that particular item. And Soulfire was in business. We now had a customer who wanted to have repeat orders and wanted to grow our business with them. And that was really kind of how Soulfire went from an idea to actually starting to have some success in the market and grow. So that interesting. So that was a one day, one match sponsorship deal with Yvonne. That's how it started. And we ultimately reached an agreement with Yvonne to have a longer term relationship with him. And we sponsored him for around three years. Uh, in all of the tournaments uh, globally. And he was just, he's, he's a wonderful uh, competitor and was a great ambassador for Soulfire. Good stuff. You know, if I can, a quick aside, I've always wondered, you see players on TV matches and they have, it seems like there's certain brands that just will put a patch on a player's shirt for, yes. for a TV match and they'll sew it on for that match. That is correct. Like, like whoever it is. and That is correct. And how much do they pay? How to get, to get the patch on the player's shirt for one match on ESPN? The short answer is, I know the number, but 
I also am in and around the business, and I'm pretty sure those people would be irritated Fair enough. if I shared that number. So I'm going to hold that number back mostly because I don't want to get a phone call from one of those people saying, what are you doing? Got it. They have a business as well. They're trying to be able to get their brand on the particular side. And by the way, the number changes depending upon the tournament and the round and who you're playing. So if you're playing Roger Federer on center court at a big match, during the weekend, that's one number. If you're playing a second-tier player who's in the top 10 on the weekend on this second court, it's a different number. And ultimately, these guys basically have agents who the second the matches are set up and the schedule set up, they go to the players and they say, for this amount of money, if you put this patch on your shoulder, we're good. And there's two or three brands that you see, as you point out regularly, who have a business and that's kind of how they stay stay aware of it and so the price actually changes a little bit but I, but but yes it is it is a business and it is a marketing strategy for those brands and so so they hand over their shirt and somebody sews it on and then that's the deal that's right yep <laughs> and it, you know it looks it looks terrible you see it looks like it's about to peel off and all that you know it, it's not particularly well produced but it is as you say you know those brands and and you see you know, you see that they're getting some play consistently in those settings. And that's been, that's entirely their strategy. And they own that market. There's two or three brands that kind of do that. Sure. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So you've got this test, you've got this order with Tennis Warehouse. You've had uh, a, a success with the Dodig match with Federer. What, what are you seeing at that point in time in the industry that, that tells you, you know, I've got a lane here that, that I can exploit or there's an opportunity or we can do more of this. How are you seeing the, the landscape unfold, whether it's in tennis or in sort of other you know, tangential sports in the apparel business? So let me take you through a couple of phases, because when you're starting a business, all of these things are coming at you so fast that you're really in a reactive mode. So I'll tell you a little bit of a funny story about how naive I was about this business and the challenge. I had used what's known as a sourcing agent to be able to do the first production for Tennis Warehouse. And I basically worked for somebody who works with manufacturers and gets product done. And I realized that this sourcing community interacts with brands like ours and finds and basically finds their agents to find a factory to manufacture a particular quality of garment for a brand at a target price. And to me, I was a little bit terrified of that because their incentives were nowhere near as strong as my incentives. And I never really knew the manufacturer. So I started that way, but I went to a show called Magic, which is based in Las Vegas. And it's really a show that has a couple of dimensions to it. One of them is it's a sourcing show. And it basically is where brands and manufacturers and providers of uh, raw materials for the kind of apparel industry go to meet. And I met with probably, there was, it's literally a huge conference room, 150 different potential manufacturers. And there are fabric manufacturers, there are trim manufacturers, there are sewers and people who do printing all in the same place. And I went to China for six weeks to literally visit all of the factories that would take me between Shanghai and Hong Kong, which is where the major manufacturing corridor is in, in China. 
to just learn the business and kind of who I should work with. Because I would say that I did not have a business model with that first order. So even though I had Tennis Warehouse, who sold everything out, I sold it to them for roughly $25 a shirt. But my manufacturing cost at the time was $42 a shirt. So I was losing approximately $20 a shirt on my first order. So I was successfully losing money quickly. So I had to figure out my product cost. You got to make it up on volume. Or I was dead. And the reason, so that's why I actually focused on sourcing and manufacturing and cost, because I could see that a brand could have an interest in growing. But if you don't have your supply chain right, you're not going to make any money. And in fact, I lost money. And I made an investment in that first order. And I knew the cost was high because I knew that I could figure out the cost later and I could fund the losses as we grew. So Tennis Warehouse gave us follow-on orders and men's and women's, and they were a very, very supportive partner. I was able to be able to get into Tennis Express and Midwest Sports and other tennis-oriented retailers online following on the Tennis Warehouse. And so I knew there was a revenue opportunity, but I had to figure out my cost structure before I knew I could have any prospect of having a successful business. Where did you have that first order fulfilled? The first order for tennis where was that domestically or was that through the <laughs> well, agent? It was interesting is it was originally supposed to be fulfilled by a sourcing agent that Brendan had hired in Los Angeles. And all of the production and this is getting into a little bit of, you know, the the trials and tribulations of a small business. It was originally going to be produced in Los Angeles and, and, and sent up to San Luis Obispo in California. So everything was going to be done in the United States. Well, I had actually funded this, and I was in a business trip trying to sell a financial institution's technology company as an investment banker. So I actually had two jobs at the same time. I was still an investment banker on the side. I was driving from Orange County to LAX to fly back to New York. And I actually, the traffic wasn't bad. So I called Brendan. I said, Brendan, could you give me the address of the fulfillment company who's doing the doing everything? I just want to check on an order because I think we're going to ship it to Tennis Warehouse in the next couple of weeks. He gave me the address. It was in South Central LA. And I go there and the order was in absolute shambles. It was not what we had ordered. It was not properly manufactured. It wasn't well, well, well packaged. And it was so bad that I was certain they would never accept it and that we would be out of business before we even got started. So I called Brendan and I said, Brendan, you need to come to LA and we're both going to go to Tennis Warehouse and beg. And we're going to beg them for as much time as they'll give us to be able to remake the apparel in a different way. And what was wrong with the, what was wrong with the order? It was just, just shoddy quality and, and they, didn't, they didn't know or care or what, where was the disconnect? Have you ever been to TJ Maxx and taken a look at some of the stuff on their racks and how it's kind of like second-rate quality, but super cheap? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a manufacturing problem. Now, sometimes those are just manufacturers' mistakes, or sometimes those are just very bad manufacturers who just do a very low-quality thing for super cheap. The product that we were selling was a $50 price point product on Tennis Warehouse as a new brand. It could not possibly look like something that you buy at TJ Maxx. Nothing about TJ Maxx. You get some great deals there, but you don't go there to buy or discover a new brand and you don't expect to pay $50 for whatever you buy there. And so 
when I looked at this, I said, this is something that you would find at TJ Maxx. Now there were, Scott, many problems. There was bad sewing. There was poor packaging. The list was long. It wasn't like one thing was wrong. Everything was wrong. And so when it arrived at Tennis Warehouse's thing next to a bag of Nike or Adidas stuff, they just sit there and say, uh, no, thanks. The Soulfire brand's really not ready for prime time. We're going to pass. Yeah. So fortunately, the folks at Tennis Warehouse uh, and a lady named Heidi Gottschall, who is their lead buyer and our relationship person, really supportive of Soulfire in the beginning. She said, John, well, first of all, how long do you need? And I, and I didn't know anything about the business. So I said, could you give me four months? <laughs> and so I'm like, sure, four months would be great. So as opposed to launching it around the holidays, we were actually going to launch it during springtime, which is exactly how we actually uh, coincided with Ivan Dodig because the springtime tournament in Indian Wells is right around the same time. So they said, oh, that's great. We'll just launch it around Indian Wells. So I went, no problem. So this was like November. So Scott, originally, and we used all the fabric we had. So I went back to the fabric mill, which was actually in North Carolina, and I bought several thousand yards of fabric. And we shipped it up to Vancouver, Canada, which is where I had found a manufacturer through a sourcing agent who did some work for Under Armour. And we also had the apparel printed because there was a process called sublimation we had to do. And that printer was next to the manufacturer in, in Vancouver. So fabric came from, from North Carolina. Manufacturing was done in Vancouver and printing and the sublimation process was done in a factory next to the factory in Vancouver. And then it was shipped down to San Luis Obispo. So that was basically how we manufactured and did the first process. And that's when I realized I'm going to get killed if I don't figure out my supply chain. So that's when I went to Magic to try to figure out the industry supply chain. And I spent a fair amount of time in China kind of getting my head around the challenge of actually delivering a reasonably priced product, consistent quality on time, all the time. And that to me, I believe is the foundation of success in, in this business and most businesses, but this business in particular is your customer has a particular time frame they want to sell the, to sell the product. It needs to arrive. It has to be a great quality and consistently delivered. And that was kind of how I focused on you know, our business principles is those, those were kind of keystones. Even though I started with kind of a fashion lean, I really kind of back-ended and realized that we were in the logistics business in disguise. Interesting. And so you're a banker at this time, and you've got yes. the Soul Fire business. When, when did you decide that there was enough here that I'm going to jump in to the, the athletic apparel business 100%? And what did that decision look like? And what did you do next? <laughs> so let, let me let me start by saying getting into the apparel business might be one of my worst decisions in my entire life, initially. Why do you say that? And let me give you kind of the, the background. I was an investment banker after the financial institutions crisis and a lady named Elizabeth Warren, who was a very powerful senator running for president today who basically demonized the financial services industry and anything that they did was bad. And she made it her mission to throw all of my clients under the bus and effectively really shut down the ability for me to do any significant business with my core customer base for years. So that was the first dynamic. As a banker, I was looking at it going, okay, I'm going to have to do a pivot with respect to my traditional customer base and find out how I'm going to basically, you know, be a successful banker for the next couple of years until Elizabeth Warren kind of gets off the financial services thing and we get back to, you know, 
get back to the industry doing business. That was the first dynamic. The second dynamic is we had a fairly significant investment from the Carlisle Group and Kelso into Sandler O'Neill at the time. And that worked out well for me as a partner. And I had enough capital to be able to think what I'm going to say is a little bit more broadly about what my future might look like. And I looked at this opportunity simultaneously. So that was really not tied to this. So I had a chunk of capital as a uh, and wealth created from from that investment from Carlisle Kelso. I had my career with Elizabeth Warren and, and the United States kind of large financial institutions being put on hold. And again, I was largely a merger banker. And then the last thing is I had this business opportunity in front of me. So what I did was I jumped into my business opportunity with really understanding what I was getting into, mostly because I didn't love you know where my investment banking future looked like, and I had enough capital to take some risk. That's how it started. That's not a good basis for business decision-making, in my opinion. But I now jumped into the pool with no parachute, with a lot of alligators and, and, and crocodiles, and I had to kind of figure it out and see if I could swim and survive. And so as I figured, and because like I said, I had just sold $25 shirts with a manufacturing cost in the 40s. So that's not a business model. And I kind of jumped in and I said, but I think I can improve your cost structure. So that's, Scott, how I really embraced understanding the supply chain and the logistics and the cost of manufacturing apparel. And that was really a raw necessity just to stay alive as a business person in this business owning a brand. And that I kind of got into the business mostly to kind of protect the possibility that Soulfire could be a viable brand in three years once I figured out my cost structure. And that was really my goal. I needed to grow revenues, which were doing okay, but I really needed to get my costs down, which were absolutely essential to staying in business. And I had enough capital to be able to take the risk and not have it affect my family's, you know, my family's comfort level over the next couple of years. And so that's kind of, that's how it started. And then I, I, I tried to make something of it. And then clearly you have, so just quickly, and I want to dive into the cost structure and the supply chain and, and your sort of, you know, deep involvement in, in China, but what did the competitive landscape look like? And what did your customer look like at the beginning? You started in tennis, you had, who did you have as, as your core competitors, Nike, Under Armour, Adidas, who were you really going head to head with for that unit? So let me kind of break it into a couple of pieces. And, and the first one is the tennis segment. So Under Armour really wasn't even relevant in the tennis segment. The tennis segment was really Nike, Adidas, and what I'm going to say is designer brands for women and a couple of niche brands on the men's side. So as an example, Bjorn Borg has some tennis apparel that sells on Tennis Warehouse. There is Lucky in Love, which is a women's brand which is really just focuses on kind of women's fashion apparel. And I was a brand that sold to both men and women with really colorful graphics coming from an artist. And so we clearly had a niche in both men and women as something unique and interesting. And that was just tennis to start. And the market was, what I'm going to say is open for new brands. But the thing I found was that tennis didn't have that much volume unless you were Nike or Adidas. So these niche brands exist, but interestingly enough, I don't know if any of them make any money in tennis at all because I know what the cost structure is and I know how many units they're generally selling. And I think 
these niche brands are existing mostly because there are principles behind them that are a bit more vanity projects than real business models. And the reason I say that is Soulfire was a bit of a vanity project in the beginning for me too. And you know, I kind of looked at it and I said, look, I need to, to transition out of this. So tennis was, that was the dynamic for tennis, almost entirely wholesale. And there's a really important distinction that I need to make between wholesale and retail. So let me, you know, how familiar are you with the differences in wholesale and retail? And should I kind of explain that a bit more detail? Yeah, I think at a high level, I, I'm generically familiar with the difference, but you know, curious uh, as a customer, if I go in and spend fifty dollars in you know at my local tennis club on on any kind of a shirt, you know, where does that trickle down to? How does that get screwed up? <laughs> so, so here's how it works: the wholesale distribution channel has been built up over century plus as the core distribution channel for volume, and Macy's and others have massive infrastructures. That effectively, if you're on Macy's, you're now in business and a brand. They charge for that. And they basically will charge you anywhere between 50 and 60 cents on the dollar of the aggregate price goes to them. So if you see a $50 price tag at Macy's or another wholesale partner, you're probably getting $20 of that if you're lucky. And you're also going to be paid 90 days out. And if there are any mistakes whatsoever in what you give them, they're going to cut that 20 into less. And if they don't sell it, there's going to be something called markdown dollars, which they basically take the money that they had to pay to reduce their margin through markdowns, and they pass it on to the vendor. So the wholesale model has lots of volume, but really, really thin margins. And no leverage for the vendor, I'm guessing. And no leverage for the vendor. So the vendor is entirely kind of slave to that. Now, there's different levels of wholesalers. So there's the Macy's of the world, and then there's the tennis warehouses. Tennis warehouses' terms are far more constructive, and the margins are better. So our very first order, we made 50% margin. So I made $25 a shirt for a $50, for a $50 item in the tennis warehouse. So we basically split the difference. And they paid us in very reasonable time frame. They were much easier. And so there is a spectrum of wholesale partners that will basically you know, give you more constructive terms so they can introduce new brands and kind of be the preferred partner. And, and that's kind of how the wholesale sector works. Then there's the retail or online sector or direct-to-consumer, really, is the best way to describe it. And there are brands like Everlane who've made their entire brand messaging around selling to the consumer and taking out the middleman and basically saying, if I sold it to Macy's and then they sold it to you, the product would be a lot higher priced and you wouldn't get it as quickly. What I'm going to do is I'm going to basically sell directly to you online. You're going to give me all of the money, but I'm going to give you a lower price. So I'm going to share some of the profit that I was giving to Macy's if you buy with me online. And that's the other model. And that's one of the reasons why the direct-to-consumer and the adoption of, of the internet and of people buying online directly with brands is really a lifeline for brands because it now gives them an option to compete versus the wholesale people who say, I can give you big volume, but your terms are going to be terrible and your margins are going to be thin. If you can grow your online business, you really don't need the wholesale channel anymore. Mm -hmm. But once you build a real brand, the wholesale channel is like, well, I want you. What do I need to do? And that's a little bit of the tension in the industry today, which is if you create a really viable brand, the wholesale channel will come to you. 
but you don't ever want to go to the wholesale channel first because they'll just rake you over the coals with their their initial terms. So that's kind of the tension. And brands, on the other hand, are like, I need to get enough volume so that the manufacturers can reduce my costs and I can make money. And the wholesale channel is the one that offers that. But I really want the retail margin because I want to have a direct relationship with my customer. And over time, as I build, I really don't want to have anything to do with the wholesale channel. And that's kind of the dynamic of this industry overall between the distribution and the manufacturing and the brand and you know brand creators. Interesting. And in just a second, you know, love to hear about you know your you know really digging into to your cost structure in the supply chain. But curious, how important at this stage? Uh, you talked about the Ivan Dodig deal. How important are brand ambassadors and player endorsements to building a brand and, and getting distribution, if at all? Well, let's talk about by segment. So again, most people look at this as kind of an aggregate thing, but people who are in the business recognize that there are market segments. Within the tennis segment, if you're going to be lucky in love and fashion, then the ladies are just getting it because you're fashionable and interesting. So you really don't need brand ambassadors. When you're Soulfire, who's never nobody's ever heard of you, it's helpful to have a brand ambassador. So we, you know, had Dodig and several other, you know, professional tennis players, mostly to credentialize us with the tennis community that we're real. And they're like, oh, if Ivan Dodig is wearing you, then you know, you must, you know, who else is it? And so there's a little bit of the name game. So you you basically have to have a minimum number of people. So like the Bryan brothers and K Swiss, and you know, so K Swiss is relevant because they the Bryan brothers wear it. in tennis. In the men's segment of tennis, that is very, very, very important to have somebody who's kind of wearing your brand to, to, to have some credibility if you want to be across all the channels. In the women's segment, less so, because I think women really just prefer what the design is. I like it or I don't like it. And I don't care if some other girl is wearing it. If I don't like it, I don't want it. Mm-hmm. And so there's a little bit of that dynamic that, that goes on. Now, more broadly, I actually... What we'll say is I call it the influencer market, not just the ambassador market, because the influencer market is for the entire industry. There are people out there that have voices on the web through Instagram or Snapchat or all of the other, you know, TikTok is a new one that are really developing their own following with their own voice using imagery and video and words to be able to kind of curate what they like. And there are brands, because they have such significant followings, they go to them and say, I'm kind of like you. And obviously the Kardashians are a great example of having made an extraordinary business model out of this phenomenon. But influencers are very important to the extent that there is a very strong alignment between the brand and what you're selling and what they represent. And that is a huge, very, very powerful part of the business and you can't you cannot ignore it if you want to be relevant at scale. And so we keep an eye on that all the time and look at influencers that are consistent with Soulfire or other brands and see what drives that because that is very very significant for the online direct to consumer part of the business which as I told you is the best economics for the brand. And so then you would strike a financial relationship with specific influencers who you guys think are valuable. Yes. And it can work a whole bunch of different ways. You can pay them an upfront fee for a post. You can pay them actually a fee and a margin on a click-through and a sale. And there are business models that drive both. So there are influencers that basically say, 
you know, if I sell 10,000 units through your platform, I want to have X percent of your sales. Mm -hmm. And there are others where just say, I'll do X for this post. I'll put this, I'll tag it. And, and I'll send you kind of the, the follow through and that's all I'm going to do. I don't want, you know, I don't want it to be any more complicated than that. And that's a very important part of the consumer apparel business. Interesting. Times have changed or evolved, I should say. So let's pivot for our last little part of the conversation here and appreciate your time to your involvement in manufacturing overseas. And you, you mentioned earlier that you learned early on, it was going to be a critical part of your success to get the cost structure right. And that you know, having more control over that process uh, was going to be a, a key success factor. Tell us sort of where you are today in your the vertical integration of the company. How did that come about, and and how does that you know position the company going forward? So let me give you there are two steps to it. The first step was that Soulfire pivoted from tennis to fitness, and the reason we did that is we had a rep who was a tennis rep selling Soulfire in the Northeast, knock on a door called Peloton. And Peloton was a small fitness emerging company at the time that he knocked on their door. And they were looking to be able to offer co-branded apparel to their customers who were buying the Peloton bikes. And Soulfire was a supplier who was more than happy to sell them Soulfire with Peloton so we actually did a, a joint marketing with them. So we said, Soulfire brand, it, we're a Brooklyn brand, we're emerging, we're relevant to fitness, and we're going to put Peloton on it and do some design. That business actually vastly exceeded our tennis business in a relatively short period of time. So our very first order with Peloton was a couple hundred units per colorway, and it has subsequently grown to many multiples of that as Peloton has had their extraordinary success, and we've been a part of that. That gave me the volume to then go to manufacturers in China and develop relationships with the next level manufacturer. And so I took the, the volume that we had with Peloton, and I was able to actually start to develop relationships with really credible world-class manufacturers in China who wanted to manufacture for us. During that process, I met the founders of Active Apparel, and there were two partners uh, Tim Hennessy and Paul McCloskey, who built Active Apparel over a couple of decades, doing world-class work for fitness brands globally in Australia and in the United States. And they had a whole roster of really interesting brands doing world-class performance apparel. And I was a very small customer at the time that they said, oh, this is an interesting brand. They're kind of plugging into Peloton, which is a new thing. Their volumes are acceptable for us to get started. And so that relationship started about three years ago as a customer-supplier relationship initially. As our business grew, and the investment banker in me couldn't kind of, you know, go away. I, you know, <laughs> I kind of did. I did what I did. You saw a deal there. I saw a deal there. I said, wait a second, guys. I want to observe a couple of things. First of all, there was a succession need. So one of the principals, Tim, wanted to actually transition out of the business. And so they needed to basically find a successor. And I was saying, hmm, maybe I could be that guy. Secondly, their business was growing and needed some capital as they were growing in the United States. And I had some additional capital that I could make an investment in the business. And so about a year uh, and a half ago, we started discussions to do a vertical integration where I said, let's merge Soulfire in 
We'll now get the entire profit. So your margin per unit is going to increase significantly because you're going to get the retail margin I'm getting, you know, or the retail and wholesale margin versus just the manufacturing margin. I'll become a stakeholder and we'll deal with some of the succession planning all at the same time. And we reached an agreement last year. Now, just to give you a sense of the scale. And where were they headquartered? They actually were founded in Australia, headquartered in Brisbane. And their key operating customers, their biggest customers, actually based in, in Brisbane. It's a company called Lorna Jane. And they grew with Lorna Jane from, from you know, very, very small to a you know, fairly significant manufacturing and support relationship for that brand. And then they expanded into the United States. And you know, we do business with many significant brands in the United States in the fitness industry that are kind of well-known. A couple of them, uh, Roan. Bandier, Equinox, Peloton are all customers of ours. And so I looked at it and I said, that's an interesting diversified portfolio. There's an opportunity for me to step in and kind of evolve the thing. And we also can have a vertically integrated brand with Soulfire. So that's kind of how that's how the, the transition worked. Today, we manufacture about 5 million garments a year. And that kind of equals out to about 15 to 17,000 units per day that come out of our, our our factory in Ningbo, China. And our organization has about 1,600 employees globally. About 1,500 of those employees are based in Ningbo, China, which is about an hour and 45 minutes south of Shanghai. And it comes out of our... We have two, We have a couple of manufacturing facilities in Ningbo, China that, that do the vast majority of our production uh, and development. And then we have support and sales offices in the United States, in Los Angeles, in New York, as well as in Brisbane, Australia. Wow, so that's a, that's a big global business. And and in Ningbo, are you manufacturing all the raw materials yourself, or do you have inputs coming from other manufacturers? So let's talk about the supply chain a little bit. And effectively, me transitioning from building a brand to now being you know very, very deep on the manufacturing side of the business. And again, as I told you earlier, my view is that we are in the logistics business, not the apparel business. And when I say logistics business, when you make a garment, there are going to be between 20 and 30 different raw materials that need to come together in a single location that need to be assembled by hand with an approximately two millimeter variance, packaged, put into boxes, and shipped around the globe and arrive on time consistently every single time. And if you don't do that, you lose money. So I'm really in the logistics business. And what we do is we have suppliers like Coats for Thread. We have amazing fabric vendors that manufacture fabric and supply it to us on a consistent basis. And we rely on those suppliers. We do the assembly and manufacturing. Now, there's a certain part of our business which is different than others is we also do the printing. So we're vertically integrated on printing. And so as I told you before, my previous factory who did our first order, there was a printer and a manufacturer. We have all of that under one roof in our environment. So that part of the process we do in-house. The other thing we do is we do logo and tag manufacturing ourselves. So we looked at it and we said, a world-class garment is not a world-class garment if the logo peels off. Sure. And the, the brand's not happy either. Uh, yes. Yes. And so that's a good way to lose a customer. The problem is the manufacturers of the logos 
are selling it to you at a fraction of a penny. And it really is not enough margin for them to care about your garment that much. And so what's fascinating about the business is we basically said, let's buy the logo machines. Let's make them ourselves. Let's make sure they never, ever peel off because we're going to use the best glues on the planet and we'll have a happy customer. Whereas other manufacturers are going to use these logos that might peel off. They might not. You don't know until the worst possible time, which is the customer calls you and says, you know, your product logos are peeling off. And we view that as a real competitive advantage. So we vertically integrated logo manufacturing and label manufacturing and printing, which were key areas that the supply chain can kill you. And many manufacturers don't do that. We happen to because we're really trying to manage the risk profile with our customers to deliver an exceptional product reliably at a reasonable price on time. Wow, that's a lot to to bite off. So coming from a banking background, now you're not just an operator. You are a you know, a hardcore operator of a global business with a very complex supply chain. What, how did you make that transition and what, what kind of new, you know, new challenge and, and, and also you're doing it overseas. Yeah. And I know you spent a, a whole lot of time there. So, you know, in that mix, I mean, what were the big challenges and what's it, what's it like, you know, doing business so globally like that? Whereas, you know, as a banker, you were dealing a lot with the U S government and, and more U S. <laughs> yeah. It, it's interesting is again, when I was at Goldman Sachs, I was a junior banker on the Estee Lauder IPO. And I was able to spend some time with two really exceptional individuals, uh, Leonard Lauder and Fred Langhammer, who was the president of Estee Lauder at the time. And they were real pure entrepreneurs. I mean, the story of, of Estee Lauder is one of the great ones where she basically walked across the Brooklyn Bridge to deliver makeup to the department stores for the wealthy women in Manhattan. And she made it out of her kitchen in Brooklyn. That's how Estee Lauder started. Leonard shared this story, plus his travels around the Midwest trying to open up the wholesale distribution channel. Uh, Fred shared his stories about traveling across Asia and building the Asian business in Japan, where Clinique and the other Estee Lauder brands, which are extraordinarily successful in a very insular country like Japan. And Fred Langer, Langhammer shared these stories about what he did. It really inspired me as a junior banker. And I was a young guy at the time, but I never really forgot those conversations. And I kind of asked myself, eventually, when am I going to have the courage to travel the path that they're speaking of? And can I do it? And so to me, that was really when I kind of got my, you know, started to sink my teeth into soul fire and active apparel, I was really seeing if I could fill those great shoes of people who had inspired me as a banker. Now, you ask a different question, though, which is, how do you manage this challenge? And the short answer is people. You absolutely positively have to make world-class decisions on the people that you work with. Because I have 1,500 people in mainland China the vast majority of which speak Chinese only. Now, my most senior team, what I'm going to say is the top 50 or 60 are bilingual and, and exceptional English as well as exceptional Chinese. And being able to work with them, not only to manage the language barrier, but the cultural barrier is no small feat. So that when you think you've said something 
and you believe you've communicated an idea, you need to believe that they actually understand that idea and are going to execute it, and they're going to execute it well. And if there's a problem, they're going to come back and talk to you about it. And so a lot of what I spend my time doing is making sure that everybody is on the same page. And these are management people in China, my my partners and the senior leadership in, in Brisbane and in the United States, and that we talk all the time. And so, Scott, the vast majority of my time is traveling around the world, talking to the team, making sure that everybody is communicating well, and where we have a problem with people, that we aggressively make changes to those people. And I think one of my skills is the ability to assess kind of talent and people since I've worked with a number of successful entrepreneurs. I can kind of, I feel like that's something I've taken from banking and those experiences. And these are people who've built extraordinary businesses, whether it's Estee Lauder or North Fork or other, you know, banks, you know, John Cannis who built built North Fork. You kind of know when you're plugged into a real business guy. And part of what I do is I spend my time making sure that my team are kind of the same level of the types of people that the people that I liked when I was a banker built. And I had when I was a banker, was interacting not only with the CEO, but I was dealing with the head of strategy, the treasurer, the chief financial officer, all of those people. So I actually had a fairly unique insight into very capable people at a lot of different levels inside of corporations. And that's really what I spend most of my time doing, Scott. And it's it's a real task. But But that's kind of how I approach the challenge of managing the scope is making sure that I'm plugged into the right people and if we don't have the right person making changes so that you know our organization doesn't suffer if we have a weakness. Sure, it's a, it's a big task and, and really impressive what you've built. If we could, John, as we, as we wrap up here, curious, what's on the roadmap you know, as you build out active apparel? Um, you know, what, do you, what do you see in, the, I guess, a multi-part question? You know, where do you see the business heading? Where do you see your business heading? And then maybe we can do some, uh, some tennis prognostication at the very end. <laughs> I guess a couple of things. First of all, I do believe the direct-to-consumer trend is a very real trend and that the wholesale channel is going to have to figure out how to modify their business model to be more friendly to brands, or they're ultimately going to be you know, not dealing with brands that drive customer flow into those, those businesses. And we want to be a part of those brands. So focusing on direct-to-consumer brands is a real strategic priority. The second thing is we're going to look to vertically integrate brands like we did with Soulfire, where brands that we have great relationships with, where we are manufacturing the vast majority of what they do, we're going to engage in conversations with those customers about strategic transactions where we do vertical integrations. Now, the reason I say that is the most successful person on the planet in this business is one of the richest men in the world. His name is Amancio Ortega. And if you like business, you've got to respect what Amancio Ortega has created. Most people haven't heard of Amancio Ortega, but most people do know Inditex and Zara. Amancio Ortega is the biggest shareholder of Inditex, and he's worth about $70 billion on any given day. And for those of us who, don't, who aren't that familiar, I've, I've heard the name, but what, what are his businesses? It's a big apparel brand, right? So Zara is his biggest brand. And Zara is a global brand that focuses on women's kind of fashion apparel. And Amancio Ortega doesn't just own the stores. He owns the factories. 
And he actually owns and deals with the yarns that are developing the fabric that go into his factories. He is vertically integrated from top to bottom. So the very best guy in the entire industry is actually vertically integrated. And we're trying to emulate some of what he does, but in the fitness arena at a much, much smaller scale. And the wealth creation that he's developed is is quite extraordinary. We don't ever think we're going to get close to that in our lifetime. But our desire is to take a look at the very best operator in the business and try to emulate some of what he does with with our strategic focus. It seems like for the other young soul fires out there, right? You've you've been down the road, you've figured it out. Yes. And that's you know, a lot of learning that you can bring to somebody else that they don't have to do for themselves, perhaps. And that's exactly what we offer. So we basically say, look, we know the challenge on the brand side. I've been there. We're going to deal with all of the logistics and manufacturing at a reasonable time, in a reasonable price, on time, consistently at a world-class level. So you can focus on brand creation. And that's actually the dialogue we have with our, our brands is just that dynamic, which is we'll let you do brand creation, let us do logistics and manufacturing, and let's build our businesses together. Now, sometimes we just do that through a contractual supply agreement it may actually become a full-blown merger. And and that's actually, those are conversations we're engaged in today. Long-term, I would hope to have several brands that are vertically integrated in addition to Soulfire and that we might take that company public in the future as a investment opportunity for people who are interested in the segment in an interesting way for the fitness segment. Because the athleisure segment has really exploded in the last decade. And there's not a lot of opportunities outside of Lululemon and Nike to kind of participate in that. And so we would look to to be able to allow investors to participate in a slightly different way. But we want to actually, you know, get a couple of brands on our portfolio before we consider that option. And is the growth in athleisure, is that from people doing new sports such as Peloton or spinning? Or is that the phenomenon of people wearing athletic gear as their everyday gear when they go to the supermarket? It's both, Scott. I mean, you know, look, I think that the fitness culture kind of vacillates in the United States, depending upon a whole bunch of different factors. And so how, you know, aggressive people are at, you know, getting into the gym and taking care of their bodies is, you know, I think a a bit of a trend. But I think the fact that people are now wearing it out to go shopping or just to hang out with their friends for cocktails really shows how that has crossed over. And what's really happened, I think, is the jeans, which were a staple for, for decades, have really been supplanted with what I'm going to say is athleisure and some of the stretch fabrics that mm-hmm. are, are being worn today. And, and they're a little bit more comfortable. Now, jeans are great, and I love my pair of jeans, but I also happen to like you know my my pants that that I manufactured for Soulfire, which are kind of a replacement to jeans. And I think there's a little bit of a role for both. And so it's clearly crossed over, and the athleisure market is now a lifestyle market as much as it is a fitness uh, market. Yeah, you see you see it every day, and I, I agree with you. These new fabrics and and uh, sort of you know, people just being a bit more casual or wanting to be more comfortable, uh, you know, certainly certainly a trend. John, if we can turn to our mutual passion, which is tennis. Curious to get your thoughts on what's happening in the game. And I guess to start with the business, I read about this monster deal that Federer did with uh, <laughs> Uniqlo. Uniqlo for, I read, <laughs> I read 300 million bucks over 10 years. Right. Pretty good um, trade. 
I hope Fed plays for 10 years. I'm guessing it's more like two or three, but who knows? Does that just speak to his, you know, sort of evergreen, you know, global power as a brand ambassador? So there's a couple of dynamics there that are are fascinating from a business perspective. I think the first one is tennis players are really unique athletes in the scheme of things because they play almost year round. And some of the injuries that we've seen in the in the business of tennis competition have come because they really don't have an off season. Having said that, it makes them really, really marketable because there's never really a time when they're not on a stage, and especially the best ones. So Djokovic and Fed have extraordinary uh, opportunities to be able to get great deals because they're pretty much there, you know, year round. The second thing, which is interesting, is they get exclusive coverage because they'll have a match that will last for two or three hours on a weekend where it's just them and another person. And so not only is it year-round, but it is for a long, dedicated period of time where it's all about them on national, global broadcasts. That makes the sponsorship opportunities extraordinary relative to what I'm going to say is the typical deals for athletes in other sports that have more of a season versus tennis. Now for Fed, he's crossed over from just being a world-class athlete to being a fashion icon with his, you know, relationship with, with Anna Wintour and, you know, and that kind of fashion circles. And he's, is that just by, by coincidence? Do you know, the answer is there's a lot of really successful people that are huge tennis fans. And Anna is a voracious tennis fan. And, these she has power and she thinks that Roger is just an extraordinary individual, which is hard to argue with. And so I think it's really an organic thing that happens both from the fashion side. And I think Fed doesn't misunderstand the business opportunity as well. I think he sits there and he says, look, I've got one of the biggest fashion icon leaders who likes me and likes my tennis. And maybe there's a business opportunity for both of us. And I think that they both recognize that. So she's a, she's a genuine tennis fan. But she's also a very powerful uh, icon in fashion. And he's an extraordinary tennis player who recognizes the business opportunity and maybe even enjoys fashion. So those partnerships come together, I think, pretty naturally. And as you'll notice, there's not a lot of people like Fed that have done it. So I think it really, it it has to be organic. And that's one of the things that I think I told you about the influencer thing is they, they have to be genuine and authentic and organic, and then business opportunities come out of that. Now, Uniqlo looked at it, and I've heard a little bit about the deal more broadly. And they said, Roger Federer is an icon that will be an icon well after his playing days. He's already started the Labor Cup. He's already you know, being an ambassador for the game more broadly. And hopefully he wins a couple of more Grand Slams. But this is a guy that's not going away. And he's already plugged into the fashion business. And we're in the fashion business. Why don't we just get plugged into him? Because he'll be relevant for the next, you know, the next 10 years, even if he's not on center court. Whereas Nike looks at it and goes, how many more Grand Slams are you going to win? How many more times in center court on Sunday are you going to be at a major? And kind of looks at it and the business math doesn't make sense because Nike doesn't view the world the way Uniqlo does. What's the difference in their worldview? Well, look, Uniqlo sells apparel globally to, you know, Lots of different people that have nothing to do with fitness at all. Whereas Nike's core business model is basically selling what we'll say is 
fitness apparel and athleisure apparel to people who you know kind of follow sport aggressively. And it's not that Nike doesn't have an interest in Fed. They do. But Uniqlo has a much broader view of the business opportunity and what's possible with somebody like Fed than Nike could ever take advantage of. I mean, Nike doesn't have that many stores. I mean, Uniqlo has thousands of stores across the globe, all over the world, all the time. And they're selling, you know, puffer jackets and they're selling, you know, slacks and they're selling, you know, dress shirts, as well as kind of fitness stuff. So the business opportunity to be able to spread what I'm going to say is a relationship with Roger Federer or Kenya Shikori is way bigger than just tennis. Whereas I think Nike looks at a little bit more with just a focus on sport. And when you take a look at the math, you know, Uniqlo can extract more money from, from the relationship and the partnership than Nike could. The other thing is the head of Uniqlo is a, vish, a voracious tennis fan. He was actually sponsoring Kenya Shikori when Kay was in the juniors. And so he is also, like Anna Wintour and others, a really, really, really enthusiastic tennis fan. And some of these partnerships have been developed. Look, I mean, Phil Knight was was well known at being at Andre Agassi's tennis matches because he was a big tennis fan. And a lot of Nike and tennis and that affiliation over the decades had, you know, Nike got big into that because Phil Knight loved tennis. And so there's a, there's a fair amount of that in business where there are very powerful business people who have interesting platforms, but also have a, what we'll say is a side passion for tennis on their leisure time. And they join those things, you know, as a commercial endeavor, you know, over time. Sure. You have, you have Larry Ellison sort of on the event side. It's amazing. Uh, yeah. What he's no. done for the game is, is, is nothing short of a completely extraordinary. And Larry Ellison, again, I should have thought of him is a great example. It also, you know, as you're pointing out, the, the tennis players, they're, they're playing, some would argue, too much. They're playing virtually year-round. And it also seems to me there, you know, there aren't that many other sports that are as global as tennis. So they're playing 24-7. They're playing almost all the continents at some point. And, uh, you know, as opposed to other sports stars who are more, more regional, you know, and more seasonal. For sure. For sure. No, it's extraordinary. I mean, literally, as you point out, almost every continent has an active ATP, you know, tour period of time, you know, we're, we're coming to the United States right now, but, but then it's going to go to Asia and then it's going to go to Europe and it's already been in Europe. So it's basically coming from Europe. You know, it's, it goes to, to Latin America as part of the, the clay season and it's in Australia for the Australian open. So, I mean, it covers most of the continents in the world and there's no other sport that has teams or major individuals that do that. Now the basketball world cup in China right now, Basketball is kind of trying to do that, where they're moving the, you know, the the key players to different different geographies, but they don't have the same star power. I mean, there's, there's even in today's like yesterday's press about how Popovich is kind of struggling with who his roster is going to be because a lot of the top players basically decided to train and get ready for the NBA season rather than go to China and play for the national team in the World Cup. So you don't have LeBron James and and Kawhi Leonard uh, as teammates trying to win the 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 World Cup. But you do have Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal and Novak Djokovic trying to win the U.S. Open, and, and they'll travel all around the world to try to do that. Sure. On that note, well, fa- you know, John, fascinating discussion. I, you know, really interesting to learn about the business, and so impressive uh, what you have built and are building. As we wrap here, we're heading into uh, the end of the hardcore season. Cincinnati coming up in Montreal now, and, and Toronto. 
who do you like uh, through the U.S. <laughs> Open on the men's and women's side? Give, give me the semifinals in each draw. <laughs> uh, at the U.S. Open? It's interesting. I, look, Fed is tough, but I think that uh, he cracked at Wimbledon against Djokovic with match point serving. That, oh, that was so hard to watch. I think mentally speaking, he is not going to recover from that in a couple of months. And I don't, he may never recover from it because uh, he, he cracked. And that's, that was a non-fed moment. I think Novak Djokovic is, is the going away favorite just because he is so tough. And the U.S. Open courts are typically a little bit slower. They've slowed them down a bit. And that's only going to play to his. You got to like Rafa because he's just so consistent, but you always worry about injuries. And so who's, who's number four? And the answer is, you know, Pass, who I think is a really, really interesting player coming up. But he got beat by Nick Kyrgios, you know, a couple of days ago in an extraordinary match. And that was a wild match. And Nick is, Nick is a phenomenon that he loves big matches. I just don't think he can survive personally two weeks consistently. I think he is an amazing big match person and against anybody on the planet, does not matter who their name is. He could beat them on any given day, but I don't think he could actually win the tournament. Although he might knock out one of those other three guys on the way because he gets excited and then has a letdown that, or, or an injury. Cause look, the guy's struggling with injuries too. Cause he doesn't train particularly hard. So, so I guess my, my one would be fed Djokovic, Rafa and Tsitsipas, but a possible curious knockout of any one of those four guys on the way. Teams, Zverev. What do you think of those guys? I think Zverev is cracked. Obviously just fired Lendl uh, a couple of weeks ago. He uh, completely choked against Balashvili uh, a couple of weeks ago with serving at 5-2 and a tiebreaker. Yeah, I saw that. And gave that away. I think his head needs to be fixed right, and he has one of the worst Grand Slam records for such a top-ranked player. Team is a very, very you know, capable athlete at a top-10 level. But as you saw how Del Potro cracked him, a couple of years ago, he's not a big match player because he's still fundamentally a grinder and a clay court player. And he's got big shots, but he doesn't seem to, to have that finishing shot the way Fed and Rafa and Djokovic kind of do. And I think that's going to hold him back from winning. Although he might, if uh, in particular against a Rafa or a Fed who's feeling their age, he might take them out because he's just a physical beast. But again, I don't see him as the, you know, the apex guy. Yeah. That's why I like Tsitsipas because Tsitsipas moves forward. And, and the, the other, the last guy I would say is a dark horse is FAA, which is uh, Felix Auser. He's amazing. Kid's got a lot of talent. I still think he's about a year and a half to two years away from being a consistent top, top 10 player, but he is super good and super dangerous. And I like him as a dark horse. Because he's actually got a little bit of firepower versus team, again, a huge heavy ball, but not a lot of variety. So it's kind of that same heavy ball and players get used to that. Whereas Fed and these other guys kind of pull out that special shot at a key time that I don't see coming from team. But you do see it coming from Pass, and you do see it coming from FAA. Sure, sure. And uh, on the ladies side, what, uh, what are you seeing there? You know, the ladies side is so wide open. I am still just, just my breath is taken away by Serena Williams, who, I mean, she makes the finals of a grand slam after basically not playing. And, you know, look, she got beat, but 
But the answer is she got there and you just can't deny her, her awesomeness. And, and I just, I, you got to put her in there. Simona Halep, I think she is, you know, just that solid. She's almost kind of like the Novak Djokovic of the crew. You know, look, uh, Angelique Kerber is always dangerous. You know, we'll see about, you know, Naomi and where she comes out on, you know, her head. But she she's admitted that she's struggled with the kind of being number one and how to be able to to deal with those dynamics. But but then the last thing is there are like three or four emerging American players. I mean, there was there's, there's like three kids in their teens that are deep into these women's tournaments in the last couple of weeks from the United States. And so I kind of say there's a whole group of dark horse players that might be kind of like Naomi Osaka, who kind of breaks through and, and starts to crack that, that core group of people and do something really exciting. And so I think US Open is going to be wide open on the women's side personally, but driven by maybe, you know, a, an emerging player that, that not that many people are familiar with who has a really, really strong run. But I still think Simona Halep and Serena Williams is probably the final. And I think Simona wins again, you know, would be my, you know, kind of read on the situation. Okay. I mean, what, where, what's your read on those, those calls? Uh, I think they're right. I agree with you on, uh, on the men's side and the ladies' side. I, I think, you know, with, with Serena, it's sort of like, I'm guessing she'll win another one at least. She's in, in that position so many times um, to be in a position to win. I think Simona has done a lot of work on her, you know, which she's alluded to publicly uh, on her attitude and her mental preparation over the last, you know, four or five years. I personally like, I'm a big Ash Barty fan. I like that all around <laughs> style of play. Um, she's the best. And, you know, super athletic and her story of taking some time out to play cricket is, you know, just amazing. And then the, you know, the up and comers, you know, you've got Coco and, you know, who else? Is it Pagula who won the WTA tournament? Did she? Okay. I missed that. But yeah, there's, there's at least, you know, four to six to eight under 20 players, you know, in Coco's generation that seemed the poised to really make a run and sort of get themselves in the top 20. Kenan and Anna Samova. And, you know, there's just a lot of talent there. Oh, Anna Samova has got an amazing game. Oof. Yeah, she's she's a big hitter. I was surprised she actually didn't uh, didn't win in San Jose, but she's. I mean, just you see her game. She reminds she's the one player who kind of reminds me of Serena's game with respect to how big it can be, but she's not quite as athletic. Yeah, no, cer- certainly a big game. So it's a it's a great time of year, and you know I'm always nostalgic. And if yeah, if I had to bet, I would bet that uh, that Djokovic and, and maybe maybe Rafa would overtake fed and total majors yeah you know i think wimbledon was huge in terms of that separation now it's four instead of six between roger and and novak but it's an exciting time to be a, a tennis fan and uh so it's just you know a great time of the year so again john i really appreciate this conversation you've taken all this time to to learn about your business and i hope you stay healthy and we'll get back on court soon i look forward to it thanks again for your time scott take care all right take care bye-bye